1: Hello, and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor. Coming up on today's show, how to talk to a science denier.
2: People are starting to care about how scientists communicate their message because scientists realize that if they don't communicate it, somebody else will and they'll get it wrong and they can just go back to their lab and be right, but the costs are incredible.
1: And the tech behind the next generation of artificial limbs. The main goal
3: for prosthetics is really just to be as lifelike as possible.
1: But first, there's been rapid progress in building what's known as the standard model of particle physics. This is how scientists understand the building blocks of the universe and its matter and forces. But the model is incomplete. Researchers were hoping that an idea known as string theory would plug the gaps, but that is increasingly in doubt.
4: Physics is at a very interesting inflection point. You've got one big theory, string theory, which has been dominant for roughly 40 years. But for all kinds of reasons, mostly because of important new empirical evidence, it's becoming clear that string theory is probably not the right idea. So the question is, what is?
1: Dylan Barry writes about science for The Economist.
4: It's an exciting time to be a physicist because there are all kinds of alternatives. And we may just be at the precipice of a new conceptual revolution.
1: Tell me a bit more about string theory and how we got here.
4: So at the beginning of the 20th century, there were two major conceptual revolutions in fundamental physics. The first was quantum mechanics, which is the theory of the very small. And the second was general relativity, which was Einstein's theory of gravity, which describes the motion of galaxies, planets, solar systems, everything that's very large. The trouble is that the two theories are fundamentally incompatible. The big question that has haunted physicists throughout the last century and through the 21st century so far is what framework is going to encompass both of them? there have been several approaches. String theory was the most promising of all of these different efforts. And the gist of string theory is that instead of a universe fundamentally made of little point-like particles, instead you've got these fundamental objects called strings, which are incredibly minuscule, but with a finite size. They're able to vibrate, they're able to wiggle around, they're able to move. And like the strings on a musical instrument, unlike a violin, these strings can vibrate with different characteristic modes. Each of these represents what from a distance look like a fundamental particle. So what's wonderful about string theory is that you you have the promise of, of a theory that can describe all of quantum mechanics, but you also get a theory of gravity for free.
1: But string theory is now being called into question.
4: String theory faces many challenges. The first is that it's an old theory now, right? It was introduced and became a dominant theory in sort of the early 1980s. But instead of being sort of a very simple, comprehensive, clear theory in the way that general relativity and quantum mechanics became, it was more like a collection of ideas that were very suggestive, but that have never quite converged into one neat theory. The second major challenge that string theory has begun to face is that there have been a series of important experimental results that have begun to cast doubt on whether it's a viable theory. In the last decade, we've had one very major experiment, the Large Hadron Collider, which has allowed us to test predictions that were made a long time ago in the 1960s, 1970s, but which we just didn't have the tools to test. More specifically, we didn't have tools at at high enough energies to test these ideas. But with the Large Hadron Collider, we've been able to poke into different bits of the universe that we hadn't had access to before. And that's allowed us to test some of the premises of string theory in a way that we haven't been able to before. And some of its premises have begun to be eroded by important theoretical results over the last 20 years, but in particular over the last 10.
1: So if string theory is out, then what are the leading alternative options that we've got?
4: We're in a position where there are a range of possible alternatives. But over the last decade, something called entropic gravity began to emerge in in the early 2010s. The gist of entropic gravity is that instead of space and time being fundamental properties of the universe, they're emergent. They emerge out of a more fundamental set of interactions between quantum objects. Now, these might just be the simple particles that we're familiar with, or they might just be sort of pure bits of quantum information. So quantum bits or qubits, as they're also known, will be familiar to people who followed quantum computing. Quantum bits are the quantum equivalent of classical bits, which are the sort of ones and zeros on which uh, classical computing is built. Now, what differentiates quantum bits from classical bits is that they have quantum properties. So instead of just being a zero or a one, they can be in a superposition of both. They can be in a manner of speaking, both zero and one at the same time. This is precisely the same idea as, uh, as Schrodinger's cat, which can be both dead and alive at the same time. Now, uh, it's called entropic gravity. that, That suggests that entropy is involved. Now, entropy is a thermodynamic concept, and it's essentially a measure of the disorder of a physical system. And entropic gravity is essentially a thermodynamic explanation for how space and time can emerge from these more fundamental quantum objects. It turns out that if you play around a little bit with black holes, you can write Einstein's uh, laws of general relativity, the Einstein equations, in a fashion that is precisely analogous to the laws of thermodynamics. This suggests that space and time emerge out of a set of microscopic interactions in much the same way that temperature and pressure and entropy emerge from microscopic systems in thermodynamics. Now, precisely how that happens, we don't know. We have some sense. We have a few clues. And, and the, the general consensus is that probably space and time are knitted together out of a fabric of quantum entanglement. So quantum entanglement is an idea that Einstein hated. Uh, He called it spooky action at a distance. But essentially, it's a way in which quantum systems, you know, for example, two particles, can be linked in a way that is very unintuitive. Essentially, it means that one particle can influence the state of another at vast distances.
1: Wow, there's some big stuff there. Time and space as emergent properties of the universe. That's kind of mind-blowing. How... Is our understanding of the universe changed if entropic gravity really is going to give us our theory of everything?
4: What is exciting about entropic gravity is that it is forcing us to sort of poke holes in ideas that for a long time we've taken as fundamental. In the case of entropic gravity, you know, we're we're poking holes in space and time and and in causality as well. There are some competing theories which also poke holes in sort of fundamental ideas like the probabilities need to add up to 100%. So the fact that we are being forced once again to really ask difficult questions is exciting and it's important. And it it suggests that we're once again, it's not on the right track, at least moving in a direction that will hopefully take us there. The big hope is that we're in a position similar to where physics was right at the end of the 19th century and the very, very beginning of the 20th century, before either quantum mechanics or general relativity. That is, we're at this moment where we've got a whole lot of problems. They seem pretty intractable, but we're on the precipice of something really revolutionary.
1: Dylan Barry, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And you can read Dylan's report into the future of physics in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you'd like to add another string to your bow, why not take out a subscription to The Economist? For your best introductory offer, go to Economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Next up, the refusal to accept scientific findings is nothing new, even among scientists themselves. In the late 1840s, the Hungarian obstetrician Ignaz Semmelweis proposed handwashing to cut mortality on maternity wards. There were many studies showing how effective such a simple action could be, but he was ridiculed. During the past year and a half, the cost of science denial has become evident. Misinformation has fed vaccine hesitancy, and that has held up vaccination programs around the world. Is science denialism on the rise? Or is it just getting more press? Dr. Lee McIntyre is the author of How to Talk to a Science Denier, and he's a researcher at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science, at Boston University. He spoke to Alok Jha about how to convince the seemingly inconvincible.
2: I think of a science denier as someone who is not willing to accept something that is the consensus view of scientists, almost always because it steps on some other thing that they would prefer to believe. Sometimes people think of science deniers as just being overly skeptical, you know, that they're they're not willing to accept anything without perfect evidence. But that's, number one, a misunderstanding of how science works. But number two, the problem there is that they are usually very willing to accept things without very good evidence if it's something that they want to believe.
5: Right, so this is something that over the decades really rankled real scientists because scientists themselves feel like they're the professional sceptics of the world. Is the science denialism of today different to the kind of sort of misinformation about science, flat earth kind of stuff that was around 20 or 30 years ago? I feel like it was a more innocent time where people perhaps believed things but without any sort of real consequence to the world.
2: Yes, uh, it's, it's different in degree, not in kind, though. I mean, the idea of disinformation, the idea of the identity around the beliefs rather than the facts, people get upset. Science denial goes, you know, back as far as science. I mean, go back to, uh, to Galileo. In the more modern era, look at evolution denial of 30 and 40 years ago. But what's different now is the internet, Flat Earthism has existed for some time. Why is it making such a comeback now? Most Flat Earthers are radicalized based on YouTube videos. And then there are now Flat Earth conferences where after you've watched enough of these videos and asked enough questions, maybe you go to a conference, which is where you become part of the community. And after that, it's very hard to bring them back because it does become part of one's identity. And what I think Two has happened is that all of these years, the last 40 or 50 years of unchecked science denial has now metastasized into reality denial. In the United States, anyway, look at what's happened with the Stop the Steal campaign over uh, voting. It's not innocent. Even the most innocent types of science denial uh, support a denialist culture. And I'm afraid that it's now a pretty virulent problem.
5: I think what you're saying there strikes the nerve with many of us in journalism in that we used to think that as long as people could agree on the reality of facts, that you could have a debate around what those facts potentially mean and the ideology around them. But but people don't agree on what's real anymore. That That's what you're saying, isn't it, in some respects?
2: Yes, and I see it in my mail. I had an exchange the other day with someone who was extremely upset with me. He claimed that there had been 10,000 deaths from the COVID vaccine. And I was calm and respectful and wrote him back and said, you know, look, number one, I think that that number is off. So, you know, please send me a link. And number two, even if the numbers were pretty bad, we're talking here, public health officials talk about relative risk even if there were deaths from the COVID vaccine, you have to balance that out against all the deaths from COVID if you didn't take the vaccine. And the response I got from him was very interesting. He said, relative risk is irrelevant in this case because there have been no deaths from COVID.
5: Okay, how do you argue with that? And that's just- I,
2: I wrote him back and said, I understand that you don't trust the CDC and the American government, the American media, et cetera, et cetera. But do you really think that there have been no COVID deaths in Brazil or South Africa or India that everyone in the entire world is in on this. And I never heard back from him.
5: Well, well um, I mean, just goes to my next question, which is to how do you start to persuade people who well, <laughs> have those sorts of deep-set beliefs? I and mean, wh- where do you go? Well, what kinds of evidence-based strategies can you use? Because isn't it very hard to reason people out of positions that they've not reasoned themselves into? Yes.
2: Yeah, Jonathan Swift said that. That's terrific. It is hard. And I'm not going to say that it's not hard because it is very difficult to do and it doesn't always work. But there is enough anecdotal evidence out there to make it clear that some people do give up their denialist beliefs. And the way that they do so is always the same it's always because of a personal engagement with someone that they either already trusted or grow to trust. And I find that fascinating because if you think that science denial is about facts and evidence and you come in and you give your facts and evidence and they don't accept it, where does the conversation go? But if you engage them as a human being, preferably face-to-face, then you can listen and just show up and hear what they have to say. And that automatically begins to build Trust. If you let someone talk, they're more willing to listen to you, and then you can work in some questions. Uh, Questions work very well. You know, asking, well, what evidence would convince you? Do not lose your temper and don't be condescending because the person that you're speaking with is, in some sense, a victim of disinformation and they really believe what they're saying and they can be talked out of it perhaps, if you approach them in the right way.
5: How much responsibility do you think scientists should take? Because for a long time, scientists didn't want to engage with people who weren't other experts. They just were, well, I remember speaking to scientists 20 years ago at the start of my journalism career when they were debates around genetically modified crops going on in the UK and I would speak to scientists and they'd say oh no no I can't be bothered speaking to you because if people are interested in the truth about genetically modified crops then they just go and read the scientific papers and I said no one reads scientific papers (laughs) please help me explain to people that this misinformation that's going on is untrue and you know we live with the consequences of that in the UK today there are no genetically modified crops here so I, I I just wonder how much responsibility should be shoved back towards the scientists.
2: Things are changing now, I think, as scientists have begun to realize what's at stake. But we need more of it. One thing that's held scientists back for a long time is the thought, well, number one, the thought, well, I can't be bothered, but also the thought, maybe I'm doing harm. Maybe I'm causing them to harden their position. That's not true. Scientists can do a lot more than they think. People are starting to care about how scientists communicate their message because scientists realize that if they don't communicate it, Somebody else will, and they'll get it wrong, and they can just go back to their lab and be right. But the costs are incredible. Quite surprisingly, trust in science is high, just, you know, as a profession. The problem with science denial is that it's not just pushing back against evolution or the shape of the earth or COVID, It's undermining how scientists reason about everything, and that's why it continues to get worse. But there is a bright spot here, which is that scientists as a whole are trusted, and we can do a better job of pushing back against science denial if more scientists were out there in person and people knew them, because then I think they could be trusted even more.
1: Thanks to Dr. Lee McIntyre and Alok Jha. And finally, prosthetic limbs have been around for a long time. The oldest known prosthesis dates back more than 3,000 years. It's a false toe made of carefully carved and painted wood for an ancient Egyptian noblewoman. In the Middle Ages, articulated limbs were forged from metal to enable knights who'd lost an arm to grasp a shield or hold their horses' reins. Today, though, Limbs are commonly made using plastics and strong, supple fabrics. But the ultimate goal for designers is to make artificial limbs that behave exactly like the real deal.
3: The main goal for prosthetics is really just to be as lifelike as possible. So for a prosthetic hand, it not only needs to look like a hand, but it needs to feel and move realistically as well.
1: Sona Popat is a science writer for The Economist.
3: It needs to be portable, and it also would be helpful to be able to feel what the hand is feeling. So maybe not even just touch, but also maybe even temperature. And a lot of prosthetics that are available at the moment, they don't really tick all of those boxes. But a new prosthetic hand that's been designed by Gu Guying and his colleagues at Shanghai Zhao Tong University in China, they think that solves a lot of these problems. It's portable, it's cheap, and it can be controlled by brain signals. And it can also signal back to the brain so that users can feel touch.
1: That sounds absolutely amazing. What exactly is the hand made from? It's
3: designed to mimic a real hand, not just in how it looks, but in also how it moves. So if you think about our fingers, they're made of three different parts with two joints to allow it to move. And so when they designed this hand, there's three pieces of rigid plastic with soft joints connecting them so you get that same range of movement. And all of those fingers and of course the thumb are connected to a 3D printed plastic palm. The whole thing is covered in an elastomer which is soft and flexible to mimic the skin. To connect it to the residual limb of the amputee the socket will be customised so that it fits correctly and comfortably for the user.
1: How does this artificial hand respond to brain signals? To be able to do that, the hand actually needs to be able to
3: detect the nervous activity in the residual limb of the amputee. Current prosthetics try and achieve that, sometimes by implanting electrodes into the user's arm. But that requires invasive surgery and it also comes with infection risks. So Dr. Gu wanted to avoid that. So this new prosthetic hand instead does all of that communication to the brain from the surface of the skin. And of course, you have signals in the other direction as well. So there are touch sensors in the fingertips of the prosthetic and the amount of pressure that they feel is decoded by this algorithm, but instead it tells electric stimulators placed against the skin to stimulate those nerves. And then the brain will detect that information and the user feels the sensation of touch.
1: One of the things that really intrigues me is if you have one of these prosthetic hands, how does it feel compared to having a normal hand? Do we know?
3: Dr. Gu, the lead scientist on the paper, he calls it a primitive touch sensation. So it may not be exactly the same as the way that a normal hand feels. And of course, this prosthetic, for example, has only one touch sensor at the end of each finger. Whereas if you think about our real hand and our entire bodies, the whole skin is one big touch sensor. So you can feel everything that you touch. So in that sense, the touch sensation will be different because you'd only feel the fingertips rather than something that presses against your palm or the back of your hand. But the touch sensation, it does work. One individual who tested it when blindfolded could identify which finger was being touched. So it may not be exactly the same as a real hand, but that's definitely progress.
1: And how is the hand powered?
3: A lot of prosthetics use um, electric systems where each joint is powered by a motor, but instead they use this pneumatic, so it's pumping air instead. And I think part of that would be because the materials might well be cheaper, but also because the hand can therefore be a modular design. Not all of the components that power the prosthetic are within the actual hand. There's also the waste bag that's worn with it. And because of that, the hand ends up being a lot lighter. The prosthetic that will be worn on the arm will come in below 300 grams, which is half the weight of some of the other prosthetics that are available. And in fact, lighter than an actual human hand. The waste bag weight will come in at about 400 grams, but that means that there's less weight on the residual limb of the amputee.
1: What kind of people are going to need these hands? And what sort of advance um, is this hand going to be over what they have available today?
3: So there's around 5 million people worldwide with upper limb amputations. And that could either be someone who's born missing a limb or it could be someone who's lost a limb. And many of those, especially in developing countries, won't have access to prosthetics, especially prosthetics with this level of technology. And the advance is that as well as not needing the invasive surgery, this hand comes with a lot better dexterity than other prosthetics currently available. To actually test this, researchers got two individuals with upper limb amputations and they had them try out this new prosthetic and another prosthetic that's available and they put them through a series of tests. And those tests are actually commonly used in research into strokes and spinal cord injuries. And they found that generally this new prosthetic hand was just as good or even better than those alternatives, especially at handling
1: those delicate objects. What sort of delicate objects did they look at? So as well as
3: things that are soft um, and easily broken, for example, a strawberry or a piece of bread that you wouldn't want to squish, especially if you wanted to eat it, that wouldn't be very enjoyable, and also interacting with individuals. So feeling the touch sensation means that you can feel the amount of pressure that you are applying and adjust it. So if you wanted to pet a cat really gently, for example, or get a good firm handshake in, then you could do that by adjusting the amount of
1: pressure you're applying. Well, that all sounds amazing. Um, Is it going to be expensive?
3: Dr. Gu says that the components come in at around 500 US dollars, and that's compared to over 10,000 US dollars for prosthetics if you wanted to buy one. Now, it is kind of difficult to directly compare these costs because you also need to consider the cost of the production, the assembly, and also customising that socket to each amputee who needs one. But it looks like this will still come in a lot cheaper. Being able to feel that touch sensation or if the research was even expanded to have more pressure sensors or detectors of temperature, for example, it could definitely change the lives of a lot of people who need those prosthetics.
1: Sona Popat, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That's all for Babish this week. Our thanks to Dylan Barry, Lee McIntyre and Sona Popat. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Amika Shortino-Nolan, Abisoy Oshindaro, Jason Hoskin, and William Warren. The show was mixed by Carla Patella. I'm Natasha Loda, and in London, this is The Economist.